I think that we've created a place that feels safe for people. And I know that because one of the universal themes that I see happen, not only on the main stage, but in the breakout sessions, in the halls, in so many places, is the willingness of people to share vulnerabilities. And when someone shares a vulnerable moment, that's when the truth happens. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm Bon Ku. Thank you for coming back to the show for everyone who listens on a weekly basis. And thanks for leaving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. This is how you, as a listener, can support the show. And we love it when you give us a shout out on social media. We see you. Thank you to Enionem Udom and Nana Ado for giving us some love on Twitter. Sorry if I mispronounce your names. We see you. We appreciate that. Today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Larry Chu on the show. He's a professor of anesthesiology, perioperative and pain medicine, and he's the director of the Stanford Anesthesia Informatics and Media Lab. Dr. Chu is a NIH-funded clinical researcher. He's the executive director of Stanford Medicine X. It's the world's longest-running and most discussed academic program on patient-centered emerging technology and medicine. He puts on a terrific academic medical conference. I've been going for the past five years. It's one of my favorites. Larry is a prolific author. He's written eight books, over 50 papers, and over 50 book chapters in academic anesthesiology. He's a member of the Editorial Advisory Board for the BMJ, one of the most influential medical journals in the world. We had such a great conversation. We talk about flattening hierarchies, creating safe spaces in healthcare, co-designing with patients, and embracing curiosity in the culture of medicine. Larry Chu, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you. This is so great to see you, Larry. We haven't seen each other during the pandemic, and I miss going to Stanford and hanging out with you. So thanks for being on the show, man. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for bringing a piece of the design lab virtually (laughs) here to California. Yeah. And and hopefully we're going to have you out and visit us again soon after all this is over. Yes. So Larry, you are the executive director of MedX and the mission of MedX is to advance healthcare by creating change that places the patient at the center of academic medicine. So for those in the listening audience who don't know what is Medicine X, what is Medicine X and what was your inspiration for starting it? Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So it's interesting. When I started it, I thought I was being all clever. So I was like, okay, the X, <laughs> it could stand for anything. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Let's just put an X there. But, you know, the more and more that the concept has developed over the years, I really do believe that, that the X really, um, really is about change. It's, mm-hmm. It really is about providing the tools for change both for people who live and work in medicine and healthcare, and also including people themselves, the end users, patients in that process of change making. We talk so much about wanting better health and mm-hmm. better healthcare, but 
I think maybe you also noticed this. We have conversations, but it, it takes so long for yeah. implementation for anything to happen. And, and I think Medicine X was born out of that frustration, that need for something to happen. And so I can tell you the story actually of how yeah. Medicine X came to be. What year um, did it start again? Was it like 2014? So, so it's actually, it'll, it's going to be, believe it or not, the concept for it is going to be 10 years. What? From wow. 10, 10 years from was when we started thinking about it. So yes, it's been a while. So it started when I was actually asked to host a, a very, a, a quite probably more traditional academic conference focused mm-hmm. on informatics at Stanford. And in the process, you know, it was the first time I was really hosting any kind of international conference. So, you're, and you're I, an amazing host, by the way. Well, I, I, <laughs> we, could, we could talk about experience design in a second, but yeah, I had never really hosted an event before. And I certainly wanted to know how you might go about doing it well. And I was looking up, well, who could I ask for advice? So I found someone named Susanna Fox, and I, I very nervously contacted this person named Susanna Fox, who I did not know. And she was so generous over time, she volunteered to have a phone call with me. And we had a wonderful conversation. And at the end, she told me something that just sounded bizarre to me. She said, if you're going to have a conference about healthcare. And she said it so gently, but she said, you might want to consider inviting people who actually use healthcare. <laughs> you might want to consider inviting, you have to remember this is 10 years ago. Yeah. And that concept of inviting patients to a healthcare conference was completely foreign. So, um, so foreign. And so for, for foreign. The- for those who don't know in the listening audience, Susanna Fox was the former chief technology officer of HHS, which is Health and Human Services for the federal government. So she's a big deal, follow her on Twitter. And yes, <laughs> academic co- medical conferences, this concept of having a patient at one is so weird. I, I think it's still a foreign concept at many traditional academic conferences because it's, it's a bunch of doctors and researchers and it's it's like why do we need to have a patient in there yeah yes and in fact and it maybe even a little intimidating but so that suggestion kind of stood out in my mind a little bit and so i put it out there i said okay yes let's do this so i put it on twitter I said, well, I'm doing this conference at Stanford and we're going to invite, I, I forgot how many, I think I, maybe I said 10 patients or something mm. like that. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. People are going to love me for this love, <laughs> love Stanford. Look, we're doing this groundbreaking thing. It's going to be wonderful. And I remember I got, I'm still, I have to find this tweet. I remember I got a tweet back from a patient who said, Something to that, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact. Yeah, thing. we'll find a tweet. We'll dig back but, in. But I... it was something like, that's great, but um, how how come only 10? And I don't see any talks by patients and you don't have any sessions for, <laughs> for patients. Basically kind of like pretty much calling me out on the fact that it was a little, if I'm honest, a little superficial in terms yeah. of we're, we're just inviting patients to attend, but 
not what I, it's I, I love that. I love when patients call us out. Yeah. So we, yes. we learned so much about that. Yes. So, so then I, well, you know, I was a little caught back because I was like, well, oh, this is, twi- <laughs> this is Twitter. Everybody, <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? So then I remember I responded and I'm, I still keep in, I'll tell you who the patient was in a second, but because I'll tell you what he's, he says of what I did next. But I just, tw- I tweeted back and I said this, I said something like, you know, I think that's a really great point and maybe you can help me. Maybe you can help me do it right or something. Do you want to maybe tell me more about how we can actually do this properly? And so I actually invited him to meet me at Stanford. And I still remember we sat down in Li Ka-shing Hall. We had this great conversation. And so he then joined me and helped me create our first session where it was jointly created with patients and that's where the whole thing started where amazing and so that patient's name was hugo campos oh hugo i love hugo (laughs) and we're great friends today but hugo tells me that was my i'm not I don't know from Star Wars. He says as a, that was my Jedi move. That I I, I turned it around on him, <laughs> and I, I reeled him in to help me where he was trying to point something out that that I hadn't done right. Uh, I actually turned it around and invited him in yeah. to help me, and and I actually it, it wasn't something where I said, well, I know everything, and but instead I, I invited him in to say, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. Please help me. And we figured it out together. Yeah. And And Hugo's great. He he has a heart disease and he has a um, defibrillator, but he talks a lot about patients owning their data and really called out medical device companies because he as a patient can access his own data in his defibrillator. And why does he have to go through the company that patients should own their data to be able to access their own health data? And what I love about Medicine X is it transformed my idea of what a academic medical healthcare conference was like, because I think there were so many patients speaking and I was just astounded. It was so refreshing and inspiring. And you really, with the help of patients, redesign what a medical conference should be like. So thank you for that. It's li- literally one of my favorite conferences I go to every year. <laughs> well, thank you. That is such a compliment coming from you. And, you know, in many ways, I hope that, and it's kind of a dream that, that what happens there could be a, someday a greater reflection of our relationships within healthcare. You, you go into this, and for those of you who haven't been to Medicine X, and I think, Bon, you're so much better at describing it than I am, but it's a... It is kind of almost this other world in terms of this relationship that we have with each other. Yeah. And you go into healthcare in a hospital setting and there's this hierarchy of, I'm a doctor, Mm. you're a patient, we're talking to each other in certain ways. And then you come into Medicine X and we carry those relationships in different ways, but then the conversations change, right? So when Hugo tweeted that to me, right? and said, oh, you're doing this wrong. I could have maintained that hierarchy and I could have said, well, Hugo, actually I'm a doctor. (laughs) 
I'm a professor at Stanford. You're a patient. So I'm sorry. I know you think that I'm doing this wrong, but I have an MD after my name. So please <laughs> excuse me. I know what I'm doing. And I invited the 10 patients. So that's the way it's supposed to be. And I just think that maybe you should just stay in your lane. You don't know what an academic conference is. You've never been to one. But at Medicine X, we kind of have changed that, that way of relationships. And, and in many ways, I feel like if we can recraft that thinking, healthcare could change. Yeah. We could learn from each other better. Yeah. I mean, you flatten that hierarchy and you shifted mindsets and through Stanford Med Medicine X, you hit this nerve. I mean, it is this movement and this community, something I've not experienced in healthcare before. And you have patients, you have leaders of prestigious academic institutions, global tech companies, famous people like Ted Koppel spoke there. And what do you think you hit upon? You tapped on this, like you hit this nerve in healthcare mm -hmm. and because you've mm -hmm. built this community and what, why do you think people are so drawn to this movement and community that, that you built in Medicine X? You know, it's really interesting. It actually took me a little bit of time to really uncover it but a few things i think that we've created a place that feels safe for people and i know that because one of the universal themes that i see happen not only on the main stage but in the breakout sessions in the halls in so many places is the willingness of people to share vulnerabilities mm. and when someone shares a vulnerable moment that's when the truth happens. But I, I totally understand that sense of vulnerability that you've created. Because one of the first times when I went to Stanford Medicine X, I was like on the verge of crying multiple times. And I'm like, I've never have done that at any sort of conference. But the vulnerability from patients and caregivers and clinicians and the honesty there, I, it was otherworldly it, it was you designed this experience that was so different from what i'm used to as a physician and it's, it's pretty incredible well yeah that really came initially from our patients and, mm -hmm. and how much i, I want to say courage it took for them to share their stories but you know, what I learned is I don't know how much it was courage so much as it's really their just need to speak their truth and share their story is what it was for them. But yeah. that, that just spread to every stakeholder, the healthcare leaders, the physicians, the technologists, and it just became part of the culture. And so, so I mean, we you have really designed that platform for people to do that in a safe way. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's that, that, that safety is one part of it. And we can talk about the experience design that we've done to kind of create that. But then I think the other part of it is we did some research in some design projects and specifically we worked with some medical societies to look at what was holding them back from working with stakeholders, working with community engagement in innovating some of their 
practices. And we did some design thinking workshops with them, with their leadership, with their physicians. And it, one of the things it came down to was fear. Mm. You know, medicine is a risk adverse yeah. specialty. Medical organizations are risk adverse. So implementing change is hard for them and they have fear. And then when we looked at what the opposite of fear is, we thought, well, the opposite of fear is courage. Hmm. That's what we thought, right? Soldiers, you you have courage, you're going into the battlefield. But actually courage is going out into the battlefield. Even if you're afraid, you still go out. Hmm. So you, you still have fear. Actually, the opposite of fear is curiosity. And so that is something else that we actively strive to create and to design into the environment is curiosity. And how do we inspire curiosity in the culture? And I think that's also something that, if I'm honest, in medicine, (laughs) we tend not to do. We're taught that Mm -hmm. actually in medical school and research. We're we're taught to not defer judgment, but to judge, judge, judge. It's like, we can't do that. No, that's not right. (laughs) We designed out curiosity in medical training. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We're taught to poke all the holes and poke it out now, right? So why do you think that is, Bond? I think it comes from what you said, this very conventional approach to training that this is the way we've done it for decades, right? It's a very apprenticeship model where, you know, you and I are professors and we're masters of knowledge. And then we transmit that knowledge down to our trainees and we do not create that safe environments for our trainees. And these are medical students and residents and even junior faculty to to be curious. There's no, you don't get rewarded for being curious. You don't get promoted for being curious, for challenging the ways that we treat patients, the ways that we come up with interventions in healthcare. There's just not a safe space to do that, right? It's what's the answer, regurgitate the answer based upon our years of studying and let's continue to do business as, as usual. I mean, that, that's my experience with medical training that we have not flattened out those hierarchies. So it's really hard for someone who's a medical student or a resident to challenge the conventional norms that we have in medicine. And when they do, we kind of like punish them for it. You know, It is hard, man. It is hard. And I think like, and I don't want to say there's no room for hierarchy in medicine. Like if like, Look, I just yeah, have... Yeah, don't take away my professor title. Well, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, I want to keep my professor title. No, I mean, like, I just... I was on call the other night, and I had four codes, you know? Oh my and gosh. I just... Okay, if a patient is asystolic, I actually like some hierarchy, okay? It's actually kind of important to have a leader in a code. Hierarchy is actually important. For instance, we know that teams actually reach decisions faster in hierarchy. Mm-hmm. We know that teams actually function faster in hierarchy, but we also know that, and this is backed by research, that teams with flattened hierarchy 
with broader interdisciplinary teams. Those are the ones that are more creative. Mm. Uh, those are the teams, that, the, the ones that are more diverse, the ones that create the more innovative solutions. But when you have a patient that's flatlined, that doesn't have a pulse, yep. sure, let's go to hierarchy and get return of spontaneous surgery. Yeah. There's no room for creativity there. <laughs> <laughs> it's follow, follow ACL's protocol. <laughs> so, so, so maybe in that sense then, then maybe in that sense, then I can say, I understand why there is some tradition in medicine for hierarchy. There is some tradition in medicine for this regimented thinking of, okay, what are the H's and T's? Let's shoot down these things. Let's rule out these things. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe we have been too heavy handed to say that's the only way to think. Yeah. And there's no room for any other ways for teams to work. And, and maybe we're losing out on opportunities for innovation and change in medicine if we only apply the ways we've always done things to solve problems in healthcare. Yeah. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about clinical trial design. You have a chapter in my book on that. It's a case study <laughs> on clinical trial design. And you state that when patients are involved in clinical trial design, there's a 500x return on investment. And the speed for a new drug to hit the market can be reduced by 2.5 years. So why isn't this a standard? Like how is co-designing with patients not a standard? Right, isn't that so remarkable? I was blown away by the, the statistics on that. And, and that's from the Tufts Research Center on, on new drug development. I feel like for so many years, and I think still to this day, there's this idea that involving patients, involving the public in clinical trials is a nice to have. That's not a must have, hmm. but I feel like sometimes when it, the data that you need is the dollars, the dollars and time and time bringing a new drug to market. And I think like any new methodology, like any new approach, it's almost like this chicken and the egg kind of thing where, hmm. well, we need the data. Okay. Or you need to do it. And here I'll, I'll tell you, I think we have this compelling data where I think we're struggling now is, and I know that there are pharma companies who want to do this. I think the struggle now is expertise in finding people who can do it thoughtfully. Mm. And also, and this is almost an eternal struggle is finding patients and people who want to work with pharma want to work with mm. clinicians in partnership and have have those skills we don't necessarily have infrastructure in place to nurture nurture patients bring them into the design process help them understand some principles of how research is done so they can really be effective partners in the design process and this is a nascent field mm. and we, we are just at the beginning and I feel like there's so much potential and promise. So many clinical trials just struggle to accrue their enrollment. Yeah. And here we're 
talking about, let's involve patients in the design. So I think that we, we have some good potential, but I, I think it's going to take investment. I think mm -hmm. organizations like PCORI in the United States are certainly leading the way by pretty much mandating that patients are part of the process yeah. in the funding of the work. And hopefully over time, that's going to accrue as part of the culture mm. to spread more throughout medical research. But to answer your question directly, I don't think today we have the infrastructure. I don't think that researchers have the knowledge or background to effectively partner with patients. I think that will change over time, but it's going to take time. Yeah. And, and this could be this framework of everyone included that you created can apply not only to drug design, but medical device design for service design in different sectors in healthcare. So it really can be applied universally, I think, in every facet of our healthcare system of including patients, because we can get better results and we can bring more humanity in medicine. Absolutely. And really all aspects of what we do, even to just the experience, experience design. Yeah. There's so much untapped aspects of healthcare that patients can contribute to. I, I still remember there the architect, Michael Graves. I don't know if you yeah. remember Michael Graves. Yeah. He came and spoke at Medicine X and, and he was affected yeah. by illness in his later years. But I still remember his talk. He was a preeminent architect of his era and someone who had that knowledge of how space informs your experience around you and then later becoming affected by yeah. himself and coming to speak and talking about how horribly <laughs> hospitals and places of healing are designed. Mm -hmm. There's so much room for partnership, so much room for collaboration between people who have knowledge and, and also this idea that that patients are one-dimensional so you're a patient so your experience is your illness just look at michael graves he is more than his illness he is an mm. architect he, his experience of illness is one thing that informs his expertise as an architect we have so much potential to bring people in to collaborate with us to make our spaces of healing better to make medicine better in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, there's an opportunity to reimagine uh, this entire space. And I hope after we get through this pandemic, the pandemic would be a time for us to think about a reset. And here's yeah. an opportunity to reimagine what healthcare might look like. I, you know, you are super inspiring to me and I don't know how you do it all, Larry. So you're a researcher, you're a practicing anesthesiologist at Stanford. You're the director of the Stanford Anesthesia Informatics and Media Lab, and you're the executive director of MedX. That's exhausting. What is a typical day like for you? And what sort of life hacks have you implemented in order to perform all these roles? <laughs> I, I, I need some help, man. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So typical day, well, like yesterday, I, yeah, I get anesthesiologists. We get up early. Super early. Super early. So morning around, people. We're morning people. 
So it was particularly crazy. So what I'm telling you right now is not healthy by <laughs> any means. But so it starts around 5 a.m. That's when I get up. 5 a.m. Okay. So we'll do a call. Yeah. Do a call. It's 5 a.m. Yeah. It, it's a busy day. I, I do have some life hacks though. So, so I live in San Francisco, but I work in Palo Alto. So if I know that I'm going to be doing a long shift, my, I do the, I do take a ride sharing thing so I can, uh-huh. I'll sleep in there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one life hack. Good. Yeah. It's like I a 30 sleep. minute drive right, from Palo Alto <laughs> to San Francisco. It's, I mean, it's 30 minutes more sleep. <laughs> yeah. And then, and so I can sleep. So that's a good life hack. And I don't know about you, but sleep is a constant struggle for oh, I think, yes. for me. And, and, and so I do, especially on call, I take, I, I don't know, I used to be like, oh, I'm going to be tough. I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to be up. But I do try to, to take any chance I can to get even a short nap, even mm. 10 minutes, 20 minutes. It's important to, yeah. and I know the disruption to your sleep cycle, but when you're on for 24 and it's crazy to think that there are people like you and me that do 24 hour shifts. Now, not, not me, man. I eight hours for me, but I do work eight hour overnight shifts and stay up for 24 <laughs> hours to do my <laughs> academic day job. So right. Exactly. You not, know what it's healthy. like. Yeah. Right. You know what it's like. Right. So, so I finished my 24 and then I had a day of meetings after, just like you. So then I did a whole academic day. You didn't after. sleep after your 24 hour shift? No, I, I do micro napping. So then I have <laughs> micro a, napping. I, I love I do back. I, I, I micro dose sleep too, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes during my meetings. <laughs> Sometimes during my meetings. Yes, exactly. But I definitely do not drive. Not, not at all. I, I will take the ride sharing. I, I don't, not when you're asleep. Yeah. Yeah. I won't do that. My other thing I do is I use an artificial intelligent assistant now for all my scheduling, which is oh, cool. Yeah. So it's a wonderful little hack that I don't know if you have it, but it, no, it, what is that? Well, I, I'm not going to like do a shameless plug for the company, but it's this wonderful thing where his name is Andrew. He's my artificial intelligence assistant uh literally i email say hi andrew can you schedule um in a, a meeting and he like does all the stuff behind the scenes but he's just uh, computer code oh huh. I, I need an andrew it's wonderful but time management is always a struggle yeah so i tend to a lot of people do this i i mean i keep my mornings free yeah that's what i do yeah i try to do the same thing yeah yeah, to have block out chunks of time where I could think, I could create, I could mm-hmm. not be bothered by meetings because otherwise, absolutely, my calendar fills up with meetings all day long. Yeah, that's what I learned over the years. Is just you just you'll just get filled up. Yeah, it just never ends. So you if you, you protected time is so. I, I have so much guilt though too. Like so many people like reach out to me i'm sure they reach out to you and want to chat and i just like i can't do it because i would literally be in meetings yeah, all day long exactly. so i'm always feeling guilty too 
<laughs> so do you did you come from a family of doctors did you always want to be a doctor because my parents never completed college and i'm like the first in my family to become a doctor and so the bar was set pretty low for me to be successful <laughs> so my parents so no one in my immediate family is a medical doctor my parents came over from china as students they uh, so which part uh, of china so my mom is from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. My dad is from Taiwan. They both came over as scholarship students to University of Wisconsin. Oh. So, which apparently at the time was like one of the largest exchange, well, like largest groups of students from China, which I did not know. And they, they still live there and they don't want to come to California. They love the cold weather in Wisconsin. <laughs> I just, I don't understand it, but they, they don't want to move. They love it. So yeah, so they've been there forever. And I have two other brothers. My other brother is also a doctor. I think I knew pretty early on. Well, I, I would say this in high school, I knew that I wanted to either be an architect or some kind of designer or a doctor. One of those oh, two. Oh, interesting. I just, I said one of those two. And, but then my parents being typical Asian parents, yeah, like, maybe you should be a doctor. <laughs> I think we like that one. Yeah, so. they, those Asian parents brainwash us <laughs> away from kind of quote unquote creative field into the field of medicine. <laughs> Where did this yearning to become a designer architect in high school come from? Well, I've always loved photography. I've always kind of had this creative mindset and, and I was editor-in-chief of the yearbook so I kind of love putting things together on a page always. I don't know why. And I don't still don't understand it, but how do you explain these things? They're just, you're drawn to it, I guess. Yeah. And, and so that was something that like appealed to me a little. I could see that thread through Stanford Medicine X because the visuals that, that are in the <laughs> conference are right. so like they're awesome they're inspiring when i got a chance to visit your lab at stanford you have like a photography booth right. set up and yeah. there's you do such a great job with video and photos and capturing human emotion and yeah. i was like this is so different from what i'm used to when i go into a lab at a medical institution. Wow. So that's, I could see that creative influence that you had as a high school student carrying through your uh, career. It is my creative outlet. And it's interesting because I would say other conferences at Stanford will ring me up and they'll be, well, can we have your Rolodex for your creative team that puts together the stage design and the graphics? And I'm like, oh, but it's just me. I just do it. And they're like, no, I mean, but like, who's your, no, I just do it. That's what I thought too. I was like, how, I was like, I want to use your team. I was like, then I went to your lab. I was like, this is like primarily you and a few other people. I'm like, that is extraordinary. Cause I think people think Stanford Medicine X is this yeah. huge conglomerate of like designers and backstage people, but it is, you have a small team that has created this amazing experience. 
They do. Yeah. It's really interesting when people visit us, they do, they think we take up a whole floor in the medical school. And then they're very surprised that we're only like 6,000 square feet in some building, but it's a creative outlet. I think for me and for the students that work at Medicine X and there's a great joy in bringing, I think of the pandemic and what's been happening over the last year plus, I think that loss of connection to people Mm. has been, I think, one thing that's affected us because we get so much joy out of creating that connection, Mm. out of that experience design. And we we do give so much thought to creating that experience that people have at Medicine X down to, you know, I often ask people, what is the first thing that you recall seeing when you come to Medicine X? So I'll ask you, what is the first thing that you think of when you, when you're coming to Medicine X, you recall seeing the first, your first image or your first thing when you came to Medicine X? That you mm, saw? I think the, intimacy of the main stage where you walk in Mm -hmm. and the you felt close to people in the audience because even the way that you sit people in around tables and the chairs are closed and it's a very intimate atmosphere and you feel very close to the speaker on stage and it was this level of intimacy and coupled with the vulnerability of the messages from the speakers and the way that when you walked in, it just felt so different. Like when you, from registration to going into the main stage or the breakout rooms that I was like, this is a weird conference. <laughs> like it was a little <laughs> bit jarring. Like it was almost like someone was giving you a hug and go welcome. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that you said, it feels like someone's giving you a hug and a welcome. And one of the things that, that we kind of do with intentionality is the balloons. Yes. So, so one yeah. of the first things that we want people to see when they come are the balloons. So for those of you listening who haven't been to Medicinex before, imagine huge balloons with a uh, little of our Medicine X logo on them as you're walking from the parking lot and they're hung up on the stairs as you're going up. And then in the lobby, we just have huge red balloons everywhere. And the intention of that is going back to this idea of safety mm. and the idea of what is your earliest memory of feeling safe and feeling happy and you remember childhood and you remember birthday parties and you remember all those happy times where you had balloons around and it's very equalizing yeah that you're at this big important stanford place and you literally have to climb upstairs so you're elevating yourself up right Mm -hmm. but which can be intimidating for a person who doesn't belong to academic medicine, who's yeah. coming from the community. But if you're surrounded by something familiar mm-hmm. that you associate with just wonderful times that you felt safe, and that sets the tone to everyone else who's coming, maybe it is that academic professor. It, it's setting that language that you have permission 
Mr. Doctor Professor, you can let your guard down a little now because look, there's balloons here. So you know what? This is not gonna be your serious conference that you have to feel like you have hierarchy here. We can all just be each other. So that's kind of a little example of well, how we love to bring joy to the experience. Mm. Well, I think that's a great way to end. I could talk with you for hours. I knew we were going to run short of time. And I, I appreciate you creating one of the most beautiful experiences in healthcare and academic medicine. So thank you for that, Larry. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It was so much fun. Joining me now is the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's up, Rob? What's going on there? You've been to Stanford Medicine X. I have. It was pretty actually uh, uh, transformational for me when I first went there. It was crazy. You gave an awesome talk there. I mean, you fit in that profile of being a patient with insulin-dependent diabetes and being an innovator. What was that talk like for you? Well, when I first went to MedEx is when I was exposed to this concept of an e-patient, right? Which is like an engaged patient, somebody who is empowered to talk about their disease and their experience. And I'd never seen that before I went there. And it was pretty amazing because I'd always just kind of looked at myself as a pharmacist. Yeah. And I kind of just ignored the fact that I had diabetes. That was just something that I had to live with personally, right? But then seeing people share that experience openly was totally eye-opening to me and realizing that there was a whole part of my experience that I wasn't sharing that could be valuable once you just kind of let it out a little bit. Yeah. And he creates that like safe space to do that. Right. It, Cause it's weird. Like it's weird to talk about our diseases or vulnerabilities. Um, it really felt like coming back from another planet after coming back from edX, like coming, like coming back to normal work and after being there, it really was like a transformative experience. We're told of MedEx groupies. I mean, it is, yeah, it's coming down from this high after going into that conference and people are just passionate about it. I mean, what, what I took away from Larry's career is Larry being able to build a creative outlet in the house of medicine because we don't have that. And he, he brings in creativity into his work. He brings it into his practice. And I think there's so many of us longing for that. And we have that too in, in our lab at um, our hospital mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. Like going into work for me is a, it's a pretty creative thing to do. I don't need to look outside of my job for creative outlets. There's so much opportunity for us to be creative and in our lab. And one of the things that you two were talking about, you were, you were getting into like, where does creativity fit into medicine? And I've had so many of these conversations where people go like, oh, what are you supposed to be like creative when you're resuscitating a patient? And I think it was funny that you, you, you brought that up and that there is a role for kind of traditional hierarchy in medicine, but there is places like, like MedEx where creativity in medicine just feels natural. You can be creative in healthcare. The two go hand in hand. We just need to find more platforms like Stanford Medicine X to engage our creativity in healthcare and to provide a safe space to do that. Just like any muscle, if you're not working out your creative muscles, they get weak. 
And this is something I just had a conversation with some pharmacy students today where we were talking about this role of creativity in healthcare. And I said, if you're not exercising that muscle, you're not going to be able to see the opportunities. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to change everything overnight. But once you start trying to incorporate creativity into your work, you start seeing these places where you're like a window opens and you're like, I, I never would have thought that was even a possibility. And yeah. I think that's where creativity comes in. And it's been great to hear our listeners give us feedback on they love the kind of creative guests that we bring on. So if you're a listener every week or if you're new, don't forget to subscribe and importantly, rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I don't know why Apple Podcasts is the only platform that you can rate us, but please give us five stars and leave us a comment because that, that helps us out. That helps people find this podcast. You can find Dr. Larry Chu on Twitter. His handle is at LarryCHU. And you can follow Stanford Medicine X on Twitter. Their handle is at Stanford MedX. Reach out to me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at DRBonku. Design Lab was produced by Robert Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.